Please turn back in your Bible to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Last Sunday we began Paul's time at the city in the city of Corinth. Today is going to be uh, largely about the comforting promise that God gave the Lord Jesus gave to Paul while he was in Corinth. Uh, last Sunday we talked about this how a large city, a lot of immorality to be called a Corinthian was to be called a prostitute or to be immoral. Uh, it was known because of the port city to be highly immoral. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be united to a prostitute in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, why does he give that warning to this city? Because it was sort of the Las Vegas, the sin city of this time period. And Paul begins preaching the gospel. And, and isn't it good that the gospel ends up finding a home with really sinful people? And the gospel always finds a home with really sinful people. I will say this until the day I die and I'm taken to heaven, that the gospel so often makes sense most immediately to people with a train wreck in their past. People who feel like they cannot be loved by anyone, much less a God who might be up there. How could anyone accept me, love me, tolerate me with the life that I have lived? How could anyone care? Look at what I've done to my life. Those people are primed for the gospel. They are ready for free grace and acceptance in Christ. Whereas those of us who've grown up a little more rule-keeping, not that it's wrong to keep the rules, I'm telling my kids to keep the rules, but you, you grow up with this rule-keeping mentality, and what do you start thinking? You can start thinking, I'm basically better than a lot of other people. I basically have my act together. The gospel might be for those bad people out there, but it's not really required for me. And Paul says, no, the gospel is for all. And so, amongst the religious Jewish community, there is a mixed response to Paul, as there often is, but eventually he has to leave the synagogue, and he goes out. Remember, he goes next door to the synagogue, and he's in Crispus' home. Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue, but now believing in the Lord. Look at verse 8. Our last verse from last Sunday, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, this is the moment. Last week, we talked about challenges and encouragements. Well, this is going to be a massive encouragement to the Apostle Paul. Remember, Paul is a human being. I think of James, I always think of James 5, when he says, Elijah… And he knows he's about to give Elijah as an illustration for us. And what do we all think? We're thinking, I'm not Elijah. I've never called down fire on Mount Carmel. I've never destroyed the prophets of Baal. It's not, I don't really relate very well to Elijah. And what is, as soon as James says Elijah, what does he say? Elijah, a man with like passions as we have, prayed, and the Lord answered. So the, the earnest prayer of a righteous man is powerful as it works. And so uh, I want to say to us here, uh, the Apostle Paul even though it seems like he wears a cape, he does not. He is a man of like passions as we are. And I, I want you to hear this. The same God who enabled Paul to do what he did is the same God you and I have access to when we pray. On your way to school on Monday morning, when you're tired and you don't want to be going to school, and you call out to God for strength and help, the same God who is alive and well in Corinth in this moment with Paul is the same God who loves to give strength to the weary on your way to work tomorrow morning. So just I want you to know that, that we should be encouraged by Paul, and we see that Paul was not some superman. He was, second, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, when I came, 2, 3, I came to you, remember the three words, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, relying on the strength of God. Well, now we see it explicitly in Acts that he was afraid. Look again at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, 
but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now you say, Paul had to be told to keep speaking? This is Paul. You can't stop this man from speaking. What do you mean he has to be encouraged? Well, here's what I think is going on in Paul's head. He's been in Corinth about the time he was in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And what happens after a few months of preaching in the synagogue, and they kick him out of the synagogue, and he's preaching to the Gentiles in the marketplace, at about the three to four-month period, or maybe the five-month period, what, what happens? A violent mob erupts in frenzy and chaos. They try to kill Paul, remember? And Paul has to flee for his life, sometimes at night under cover of darkness to get out of the city. Well, Paul's looking at his watch, his sundial. He's looking at it. He's like, okay, it's about that time. It's about that time. This is about the time I'm about to be beaten. I'm about to be whipped. I'm about to be tied to a post and beaten with rods, and I'm going to be kicked out of the city. I know my time is drawing short. And the Lord had an unusual plan for Paul in this moment. Imagine this. You know, our, our missions trips, you know, I, you know, we go on a trip, it lasts for a couple weeks usually, maybe a few months. Paul's would last longer, but he can't stay. But this time, the Lord gives him grace. He gives him a year and a half with no violent mob attacking him. He gets 18 months of gospel preaching in Corinth in one of the largest, most influential cities in the Roman Empire. I mean, Paul, this must have been incredible news for Paul. Look again, verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. The only city I know of that Paul spent more time in is going to be Ephesus later. He spends two and a half, three years or so in Ephesus. Only one city does he spend more time in, so the Lord was very favorable. Now, as we apply a text like this to our lives, we've got to be careful. Someone who, we always beat up on the prosperity theologians, it's just too easy sometimes, but the, a prosperity theologian, someone who believes that God only promises us physical prosperity and blessing here and now in this life, which is not true, someone could take this passage and misuse it, couldn't they? They could say that the promise that no one will attack you and harm you in verse 10 applies to all Christians in all places at all times. Would that be an accurate application of that verse? No. Was it true of Paul in the last 18 cities he had been to? No. Will it be true of Paul in his next cities? Not most of them. He gets beat up in a lot of places, shipwrecked. But this was a particular moment where God in His providence and mercy just gave Paul a big window of time, a year and a half. But there are other aspects to this passage that very much apply to us. So, sort of give you a title for the, the message, uh, just going to be a basic thing. You've heard it before, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. These two things are married together in this passage in a pretty profound way, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and why those things are so biblical and encouraging, why they should be to us. So, let, let me just start with human responsibility. Look, look back at verse 6 from last Sunday. So, Paul speaking to the Jews in the synagogue, verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Is Paul speaking of the human responsibility 
that the hearers of the gospel have in how they respond to God's grace in Christ? Yes. What does he say? Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. I'm going to the Gentiles. In other words, we are responsible and accountable for how we personally hear, listen to, and respond to God's Word. Most importantly, the gospel of Christ. And I I just… I cannot go any further without just saying this clearly. If you don't know this, this is the best news in the world that we have a God, even if you've heard this a hundred thousand times, it's the gospel. Listen, we have a God who loves to show kindness to sinners. Just try to absorb this for a moment. Imagine you are God, and you create people in your image perfect in a perfect world, and they, as soon as you are, as soon as you put them there, they rebel against you. They commit high treason. They disobey you once and then again. The first son ever born commits murder. This is the human race that you have made. And what does God do? God is patient. God is kind. God is forbearing. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God sent His own dear Son, His beloved Son Jesus, to live a perfect life that we have not lived, to die a brutal death on a cross. And so that God can offer us salvation through Christ if we will turn and trust in Him. And when Paul presents that message, that life-changing message, that gracious message, that incredible grace, it is something we are accountable for how we respond. If we choose to reject the gospel and to turn away from it, blood is on our own hands. Our own blood is on our own hands. We will be guilty of our own sin, and we will face the consequences of that action. There is human responsibility in this passage. Let's look at God's sovereignty. Look back at verse 9. We're going to dwell on these verses for a few more moments. Look again at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." Are there better words than that the Lord is going to be with you this week? Okay, like that's not a Sunday school statement. I'm not just up here saying things, so just think for a moment. God, the living God, the true God, the God who knows everything about everything and everyone ever who's ever lived, every molecule in the universe is under his is on his radar screen and under his control. That God is going to be with you this week in kindness and mercy because of Jesus if you trust in Christ. That Lord will be with you. So as you go out this week to speak to others about Christ, God promises that he will be with you. He will accompany you. That is encouragement. This is why Paul could be locked in a prison cell and be singing praise songs, because God was with him. Are you living a life that shows to others that the living God is actually with you, strengthening you, helping you, upholding you with His righteous right hand? Is that the God who who is there? He is. Are we living as though that God is truly with us, helping us, there for us, encouraging us and strengthening us? Now look, what is God going to do? Verse 10, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God to them. Now, that doesn't mean that there are already an enormous number of Christians, and everyone who's going to become a Christian is already saved, and so there's a lot of God's people with you. That's not what this means. 
What this means is God has a lot of people. He calls them His people. In this giant city of Corinth, go back to the shot here of the whole city. So in this, in this city, God says, I've got a whole bunch of people in this city right now, Paul, as you step in here to preach, who are already mine. They don't know it yet. And how are they going to find out that they are mine? When you preach the gospel, I'm going to empower your preaching sovereignly by my Spirit, and I am going to call to myself sovereignly. Many people, a multitude of people through the gospel preaching. So, pause here. Does Paul's preaching, that's human responsibility, he has to preach. Does Paul's preaching matter in, this, in the grand scheme of things? Yes, it is the instrument God is ordaining to use to bring about the salvation of His people. And when Paul preaches, it is guaranteed success. God's people, His many people in the city, will come to know the Lord Jesus. If you have your, uh, if you have your Bible open, flip back to Acts 13. I can't help but think of this verse along with today's passage. You'll remember this. We spent, I think, two weeks on it. Acts 13, verse 48. In a different city, it says this, when Paul preached the gospel, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, do we have to believe to be justified, to be saved? Do we have to believe? Yes, we believe. God doesn't believe for us. We believe. We, we put our faith in Christ. Who in this verse did the right thing? Who, who was humbled, saw their sin, saw their need, turned and willingly trusted Christ? Which group of people? The answer is a select group of people, those who were appointed for eternal life, every single one of them and no one else. Every single one of the ones who was appointed for eternal life believed. So, to put those two verses together… Just take Ephesians 1. God chose us, he's referring to believers, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and accepted in the beloved. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ. Now, now just listen. This appointment for eternal life did not happen at the moment you trusted Christ being appointed to eternal life. When did God make this appointment or this choosing in Christ? It did not happen when you were born. Not when you were in your mother's womb. Didn't happen when your parents were born. Didn't happen 10,000 years ago. It happened before the foundations of the world, before time and matter existed. Back in eternity, God made a sovereign decision to look upon what would one day be a fallen mass of sinful humanity and to undeservedly counterintuitively choose to save a countless multitude of the redeemed in Christ before any of us ever existed. God appointed those for eternal life who will one day believe, and everyone who is appointed will one day believe. And th this truth is encouraging in many ways. Number one, that means we have to say at the bottom of our spirituality, the bottom of our Christian faith, we have to say, this is by the grace of God that I am what I am. The fact that I am a believer is due to God's grace in my life. I think of, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 13, it speaks of names written in the book of life. Now, we're familiar with that, aren't we? Names written in the book of life, but that's not all Revelation 13 says. It, it has more, and it's kind of mind-boggling. Names written in the book of life, that would be good enough. Then it says, of the Lamb who was slain 
before the foundation of the world. So, names written in the book of life, in the, in the book of the Lamb who was slain, before the foundation of the world. God has a list of names of His elect, His beloved, who He will certainly bring to faith, and He will never fail to lose one of His own sheep. Hold your spot in Acts and turn back to John chapter 10. We were in it briefly in Sunday school. John chapter 10 to your left. This is a wonderfully encouraging passage. I'll read a few verses here. I'm tempted to read more, but just look with me. Look at starting at verse 14 of John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I what? Might bring them also? Uh, no, I must bring them also. And they might? No, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Look with me down at verse 25. I think Fred read some of this in Sunday school. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but, listen to verse 26, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, th this doctrine, I know it's controversial, believe me. I, if there are objections rising in your mind, I, I, I know. I know every time you speak on this topic, I know the, the objections that rise. But I want you to hear that, first of all, is the text actually teaching this? That's always the question. Is this in the biblical text? And I would say it's not in one or two passages. It's in dozens. But then I would say, why is this in the text? And I would say this doctrine has to be there for comfort and assurance more than almost anything else. I know it's been 2,000 years of church debates, even going back to St. Augustine and Pelagius and then on to Calvin and Arminius and all these other people. I understand. The Wesley brothers debating George Whitfield. it's been going for a long time. But I will tell you, this doctrine is not just in the Bible to cause debates. We should think through it. We should think about it carefully. And it's okay to have a discussion about this and to try to hash it out. But at the end of the day, I am convinced this teaching is really in the Bible a lot. And it is there for our sweet assurance and comfort because, listen, is there any better thing to say than to say God's love for you will never cease because it never began, because in eternity past, He chose you by name in Christ if you know Him? God cannot, nothing, you know, it's like in Christ alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from His hand till He returns and calls us home. What it's saying is nothing, if God has chosen you in Christ before time, nothing can ruin this. God is going to be faithful to hold on to you and to bring your faith to maturity and to bring you through trials and hardships, even through sins that you struggle with and to get you to repentance and to change you and over time to bring you to salvation, final, ultimate salvation. The Lord will not let you be snatched out of His hand. He's the shepherd. We are the sheep. 
I mean, of all the metaphors in the Bible, this one's not complimentary to us, okay? Like the bride of Christ, that sounds so wonderful. Like the bride, oh, that's pretty amazing. You're a sheep. Okay, all right, I'm a sheep. Sheep, you know, they can't find water if you don't, I mean, there could be water right over there. They don't know where it is. They're wandering away. They don't know how to eat grass until you put them in the right spot. I saw one video on YouTube that made me laugh out loud years ago. Uh, a, a guy I know had actually shown it to his, I think, youth group or college group. It was this picture, low-quality image of a car somewhere where there's a lot of sheep, and there's a car just sitting there, and he's trying to drive, and the sheep, uh, one sheep, you know, they, they follow whoever's in front of them, apparently. So the, the lead sheep had decided to sort of circle the car, and then every other sheep was like, this looks brilliant. So, I mean, we're talking like a small, compact car, and there's like 30 or 40 sheep going at 100 miles an hour, and the guy is trying to move forward, and the sheep are just going with it. I'm like, the Bible's not really complimenting us right now, okay? We are sheep. But here's what's wonderfully good about this. If you ever feel like, I don't know what I'm doing, you feel that way? Sometimes I don't know what's going on. I don't know what tomorrow brings. There's someone who does, and he has a rod and a staff. He fins off what is ultimately harmful to you with his rod. He takes his staff to guide you. He comforts you. He leads you beside still waters. He makes you lie down in green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. This is the God that we are hearing about. So it's not complimentary of me, but frankly, that's okay. It's complimentary of Him. He is my good shepherd. He laid down His life in a special way for His sheep, His own his elect, his people, his bride. And there is a way in which this good shepherd will lose how many sheep? He will lose no sheep. If you are truly his, you cannot be lost. You cannot be forfeited. Your faith cannot fail because God is sovereign. He is sovereign and good, and he will hold on to you. And nothing can snatch you out of either his hand or his father's hand. I've heard someone say, and man, this stuff, I don't like this. Someone said, yeah, no one can snatch you out of the hand, but you can jump out No, 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 you can't. Uh, now, if someone, is it possible someone could abandon their profession of faith? We just talked about that last hour. Yes, you, you could profess faith, pray a prayer, be baptized, and ultimately turn from Christ. But I would not say at that point that you're a sheep jumping out. The, the Bible would clearly say you're, you're not truly a believer if, that, if that's you. To back that up, 1 John 2, I think it's verse 19, says um, they went out from us. This is talking about so just real quick, people who profess faith, baptized, joined a church, and they left. They left Christianity. They went out from us, for they were not truly of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us or continued with us. But they went out that it might become evident, plain, that they are not truly of us. I think that verse is as clear a statement as you can be. Anyone who ultimately abandons their faith, we weep over that. That is heart-rending crushing if you know and love this particular person who's walked away. But they are not losing salvation any more than God can lose a Christian. We cannot lose our salvation, okay? Someone can have a false faith and leave, but someone who is truly one of God's sheep cannot be snatched out and cannot jump out. They are truly His, and He will keep them safe until the end. Now, turn with me back to the book of Acts chapter 18, because there is a flip side of comfort to this doctrine that we haven't mentioned much yet. The flip side is this. I know I keep reading it. I'm going to read it again. Acts 18, verse 10. Paul sa uh, the Lord says, I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Now, I almost want to apologize because I've used this illustration like three times, but I can't help but use it again because, I'll make it brief, this is about this text. 
just real quick, Don Carson's father, Tom Carson, pastored a small church, I believe in Quebec in Canada in the 1950s and around that period with a tiny church. Very little was happening spiritually, very few converts. And this moment makes, makes me weep so often when I read it because it is so powerful to me. He said, a number of missionaries from another part of the world who are very, had, had a lot of fruit had a little time they had to leave. So they left and they moved to Quebec. A lot of them moved to French-speaking Canada in that area. And Don Carson says, none of these missionaries from out of town, out of country, none of them lasted more than six months. Because think about it. You go from fruit to almost no fruit in Canada, and they're thinking, I shouldn't be here. I'm leaving, right? So then he says this. Don Carson's in high school. I would love to have seen Don as a high school student. As a high school student, I saw myself as more than equipped to venture opinions on just about everything. No offense to high school students in the room. So I asked Dad why none of them, none of these missionaries, had the courage or stamina to stick it out for more than six months. Always the meekest of men, Dad replied rather mildly, Don, you have to understand that they have been used to serving in a part of the world where they have seen much blessing. They are used to considerable crowds. They have built clinics and hospitals. They have seen many people converted and helped to train pastors to teach them. Then they arrive here, Canada and find everything to be interminably slow. How are they likely to read this except to conclude that they must have misunderstood their call to Quebec since no fruit seems to be forthcoming? Now, you get what's going on. So, I replied, why don't you go to some part of the world where there would be much fruit instead of staying here and producing so little? The reason why I want to weep when I hear this every time I read this thing is because when you read his dad's journals, he is being faithful in a very hard time, in a very hard place. And that would be a crushing thing to hear. Dad, what are you doing being so foolish sticking around here? Why don't you go where there's fruit? Just imagine what that would feel like if you're the dad. Until then, the conversation had been casual. Now he wheeled on me and said rather curtly, I stay because I believe God has many people in this place. Referring, of course, to the encouragement God gave to Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. And then Don adds this note. This was one of the many times my dad grounded his perseverance in the doctrine of election. I cannot improve on this illustration. Dad, why? Why are you preaching twice a day on Sundays to crowds of… Big Sunday was 19. Evening service might be 12. His journal will say something like this. Preached on 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4, 15 present, preached poorly. And, and he goes home. And his, he, he is, he's dealing with discouragement at this time. His son says, go somewhere to fruitful. And his dad responds with this deep well of conviction that's holding him in place for the decades he was there. He says, son, I believe God has many people in this place. The doctrine that God is good and that He is going to save His sheep even during the dry seasons, when it's not a revival breaking out, we must trust that God is good and He has many people in virtually every place. And I'll just tell you, I don't have a promise from God about Athens. Maybe the Lord will come back today and it will be all over in terms of how many are converted. But if the Lord tarries and delays, I have no question in my mind that there are many people in this city who belong to the Lord and do not yet trust Him. He has many sheep in this city. I have no doubt at this giant campus right down the road, the University of Georgia with 30 plus thousand students, I have no doubt that there are numerous students right now, may have just moved into their dorm for the first time, who do not know the Lord Jesus, and yet they are the Lord's sheep, and He will have them. And, and I hope that we, you, are involved in their salvation. What more encouraging thing could there be than the fact that my fallible finitude doesn't mess up God's saving plan? 
My bumbling gospel presentation where I get the verse reference wrong and I misquote the verse and I don't even know what I'm saying and they ask me a hard question, I don't know how to respond to it, and yet God will save His own. We, we cannot mess this thing up ultimately. God is in control and He is good, so we just must be faithful with what we are able to do, which often feels so small. Doesn't it just feel so small? You look back on a week, a month, a year, a decade of your life, and you go, did I really do anything of consequence? Well, what's going on with my life? This feels so small. And, and, and Zechariah will say, do not despise the day of small things, because the Lord is working a plan that is far bigger than you and I. And whether we get 18 months of free gospel preaching or we get chased out of our area, whatever happens, we must know that the Lord will fail to get none of His sheep. Ultimately, evangelism has a guaranteed success mark over the top because God will save His own. Now, let's look at an application of what was promised to Paul here because it looks like he's about to get in trouble. Verse 12, but when Gallio… I'm going to go ahead and put the Bema seat back up on the screen here. So here's where he would have been. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Greek is Bema, which is that right there. Brought him before the Bema, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But, but since, since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, the Bema. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. But just a couple things here. Number one, this guy Sosthenes, we're not sure. Either he's the replacement leader of the synagogue, because remember the first guy was converted. So, so there's no, no leader of the synagogue, so we've got to get a new guy. So this may be the new guy, Sosthenes. If it is, it makes the story even better. This is just fantastic. I suppose I can't prove this, but I think you'll see that the likelihood is very strong. A few little time goes by, Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. Just get a hold of the opening sentence of 1 Corinthians. If you haven't, if you've forgotten the wording, listen to the opening sentence. So he's writing back to these people, Paul... We're used to that. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Did he get another synagogue ruler to convert? It looks like it. This is just fantastic. So the, the Jewish people who don't agree with Paul are going, what is going on here? Well, the first synagogue ruler, he's converted, Crispus, and then the guy apparently replaces him, Sosthenes, and he gets beaten up here in this scene. Well, either he already has been or he will convert to Christ, and he helps. He, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, Paul says, sit next to me at the table. Remember old Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler? Well, he's here with me as he writes. So amazing that another synagogue leader was likely converted here. But let's explain what's going on at this, at this Bema seat. The Greek is Bema, English is Bema, if you're wondering what's going on with pronunciation. So the Bema seat here behind me. Gallio is standing up there, Paul is down in front, and here's the charge. See if you can follow this real quick. Okay, this is a little historical, so just stick with me. The Roman world, they would take over places, and they would, they would try to bring in the gods of whatever city that they took over, and they would, you know, they would incorporate their gods into the Roman pantheon. But there was one really stubborn group of people, and I'm glad, who would not bow the knee to any Roman gods. It was the Jewish people. They basically said, literally, you can kill us, but we're not bowing to the Roman gods. We have one god, his name is Yahweh. And, and so, so the Romans, Romans made a concession only for Jewish religion. religion. They said, okay, everybody's, everybody's got to bow down to the Roman gods in the whole Roman Empire, except 
we just don't think it's worth the fight. We'll let the Jewish people have a religio-licita, a legal religion. And so Judaism was legally allowed. They did not have that of the Roman gods or the Roman emperor. They could worship only Yahweh. It was a special thing they had for a temporary time until things got a little messed up later. But in the meantime, you understand Christianity is truly the fulfillment of Judaism. So Paul, right, the question is, is Paul teaching something that's so contrary to Jewish law that it's no longer under the religiolicita Jewish religion is, uh, it's allowed? That was a bad sentence. Let me try again. Do you see what I'm saying? If Christianity is part of Judaism, the fulfillment of Judaism, then it would be considered a legal religion, right? Because Jewish, the Jewish religion was legal. But the Jewish people are saying, no, it's a false version of our religion. It should not have the exception of being a legal religion. It should be a religio illicita, an illegal religion. And so that seems to be the thing. Now, this may not seem like a big deal. If Gallio rules against Christianity right here, the next next years of church history change radically right now. Paul could be meeting a death sooner than he expected, 10 years before uh, other things will happen. But instead, Gallio says, listen, look look at the… I'll reread part of it. Verse 13. So they say to Galileo, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. I think that means the Jewish law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime against Roman law, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Do you see? He says, you're just debating Judaism. So you think Jesus is the Messiah, and y'all think someone else in the future is the Messiah. Y'all are just debating names and words in Jewish religion. This is all legal. It's frankly a little annoying to me, Gallio says. I don't really like talking about this, but like it's all under Judaism. So let's just kind of, y'all can get out of here. And you see, that's actually a huge win for Christianity at this moment. Later, it will no longer be a legal religion, but right now it is uh, a legal religion. It's protected at this point. So look at verse 16. He drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. I have to wonder, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 6, when he says, do not take your court cases before unbelievers, if he's thinking of this moment. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily turn out well. Maybe you'll get beaten up in front of the, uh, in front of the judge. Don't take, your, don't take your, your trials before unbelievers. Settle it in the church. You should be able to deal with things amongst believers. You should not have to take this thing ultimately to, uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the pagan officials at that time. Okay, I'm going to start bringing this toward a conclusion here. I won't be able to say everything about these following verses. I'll just say a few things. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria, he cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail for Ephesus. Do you see human responsibility and God's sovereignty? Paul just lives under this. Paul says, I've got plans. They may or may not happen. And I, you know, James 4, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, we will trade and make profit. But you don't, he says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Rather, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you are boasting, and all such boasting is evil. We should say, if God is willing. So, verse 22, when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Okay, just look back at our map here. You can see where Paul had been 
over here in Corinth where the red dot is. Now he's on a return journey. He heads to St. Crea, the port city. He heads over to Ephesus, spends a brief time, and then he's going to eventually make his way back to Caesarea. We're told he goes up to Jerusalem, which looks like it's down, but remember, you always go up to Jerusalem because of the elevation and the dignity, not because of the map issue. So he goes up to Jerusalem church, then he goes down, which looks like up to us, back to the home church in Antioch. So listen, the end of verse 22 is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. We've made it through another one, okay? So that's the end of Paul's second missionary journey. His third journey, we'll do one verse, starts in verse 23. His third journey begins in verse 23. After spending some time there, in Antioch, his home church. He departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Let me just turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians to your right, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You know what? Excuse me. I want to add one more piece. Look at chapter 1, 1 first Corinthians. 1 and then look at 5. The reason I won't linger here is because we have talked about these verses some recently, so I don't feel the need to go through them in, at length. But just... That doctrine of election, did it ever show up when he wrote to the Corinthians? I know you, many of you know these verses, but just follow with me. They're, they're too good to leave out here. Have I confused you? First Corinthians chapter 1. I don't know if I said 2 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 1. Confused myself. Now, look at these wonderful verses. I'm going to read an extended section here. First Corinthians 1.18. Remember, he talked about Jews and Gentiles in Corinth. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, that's a sovereign call, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, or from Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me just say, I hope if you believe in this doctrine that it is a humbling thing, not a prideful thing. Oh, I got this doctrine figured out. That makes me better than those who don't believe it. Then you need to go re-examine that doctrine. God saved you apart from anything in you by His mercy and grace. All right, now let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since Paul stood before Gallio's Bema in Corinth, there's no way Paul's not thinking of that exact same place 
put it back on the screen, today's version of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now, these words are sobering in verse 10. For we must all appear before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And uh, do you hear that? All of us are going to stand, not before Gallio's bema. We're going to stand before the bema, the judgment seat of the King of kings and Lord of lords who knows all and sees all, the unmanipulatable God. You cannot manipulate this God. He knows what is true, and we must give an account. But here's the good news in this chapter, verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him, that is, God the Father made God the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Of God. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we, we know that we are going to stand before the Bema, not of Gallio, but of Christ Jesus, and we will give an account of ourselves to you. We will give an account for every careless word, Jesus said. And Lord, that, that is a crushing thought, if not for verse 21 that for those who know You, You, Father, made Jesus to be sin with our sin, although He never sinned, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ, even though we are not inherently righteous ourselves. The great exchange, my sin put on Jesus, His perfect righteousness clothing me, so that I can stand before the bema of Christ and give account of many flaws and many sins, much, much in my life that is not as it should be. And yet I know that I will not face condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are safe in Jesus. And we know that we will be able to endure the judgment because of Christ. And God, I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice who has not fled to Jesus for safety and refuge. I pray that they would do that even now. And as they do, that they would show themselves to be your true people and true sheep. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.